Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of technology, media, and business in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. And Linkshus, the place where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, Charlie. Hi, how's it going? I'm fine. How are you doing? Where are you actually? I'm doing great. Uh, I'm in the northeastern United States, and it is a beautiful summer day here. Mm. And we are talking to Charlie Custer from Editor Tech in Asia. And you write a lot about technology and video games in China, running by the Twitter handle China Geeks. So tell me, how did you ever get started? Well, I used to live in China. And so I, I started with the reason my Twitter handle is China Geeks is that I was originally writing a blog called China Geeks. It was kind of about, I mean, it was about everything, sort of just stuff that I ran into in China. So there was a lot of politics and society, and but there was also technology. And that was something that I became more interested in as like Sina Weibo and these sort of microblogging services came out. More people were, you know, more Chinese people were getting online. So I sort of kept up this interest in just kind of following the China technology scene. Eventually, I got hired by Tech in Asia back when it was way back in the day when it was called Penals and long before it was called Tech in Asia. So I joined Tech in Asia and I worked for Tech in Asia in China for a few years and then... A couple of years ago, my wife and I decided to move back to the U.S., but I had already been with the company for a long time at that point. And a lot of what I do can be done through the internet, just like you know, I can I can conduct interviews through email or through Skype, and I can read the Chinese news, obviously, from anywhere in the world. So I said, hey, why don't I just keep doing this? And Tech in Asia was fine with that, so here I am. And then you keep track with things in China, so I assume that you actually read and write Chinese very well then. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I studied Chinese in college, and then part of the reason that I moved to China in the first place was to sort of continue my study and build up my skills a little bit. So it's something that I work on all the time. But yeah, I, I have no trouble reading Chinese, and that's that's a part of my work every day. Kind of interesting question to ask. So which Chinese blogs do you follow? I mean, I follow a couple of Chinese blogs because I also can read Chinese. So maybe we can share a little bit first on that. Uh, for technology, I assume yes, you mean. Technology. It, uh, yeah, I kind of have different moods. Like for a while, TechWeb was my favorite. These days, honestly, I, the first one that I check is just Sina Tech, you know, with a big like tech portal, just because they have, I mean, pretty much anything that's big that's happening will be on there. Uh, I also like 36KR which is kind of a more startup-focused one. But for me, Cinetech is good because it's a lot of China-specific news. Like 36KR is great, but they also cover a lot of foreign startup news, which I don't care about because we don't cover that on Tech in Asia. So Cinetech, I can go there quickly, and the headlines are usually like, I, you know, I can scan those very quickly and see like, okay, is there any major, like, absolutely need to do this kind of news and if there's not then i can scroll down and look at their feed of like everything that they've done and you know because it's such a huge site they'll have you know 30 40 50 stories that they've done just in the past 24 hours so there's a lot for me to look at and see okay is there some kind of interesting story here is there an interesting angle so that's a uh, cinetech is probably my favorite at the moment but it, it does come in waves like i said a few months ago i would have said tech web uh, and a few months from now who knows i might be on to something else <laughs> and i know you actually do documentaries as well so just to kind of end a little bit with your story, you did something on ch children trafficking, right? And kind yeah. of what, what inspired you to do it? And maybe you can tell us a little bit about that documentary. Sure, yeah. So in along with my interest in technology in China, I've always, always been interested in kind of social issues and politics. And a, and a big part of that blog that I wrote, China Geeks, was about that stuff, even more so than technology. Usually when I talked about tech, it was about tech as it kind of intersected with society and politics and these kind of like big issues in China. But at a certain point, 
I got interested in the documentary like as, as a form and as a way of storytelling because I felt like it's easy to, you know, when you write something, but people, especially readers like overseas, they can't see it and they're not seeing these people sort of firsthand. It, it can come off as kind of impersonal. Like if I say 10,000 kids in China are kidnapped and sold every year, that's a terrifying statistic, right? But it's just a number. It's not really... Like, I can write an article about that, but it doesn't feel that personal because you're not seeing these emotions. You're not seeing the victims of this. A documentary was something that I was interested in anyway. So we kind of just decided, like, maybe this is something we could do. We tried it out with a, a few sort of shorter kind of test, little test films that we made, uh, my wife and I. And it seemed like it might be something we could do. So we started a Kickstarter to make this documentary about child trafficking. Not really sure how it would go. We ended up getting enough money for it. And so then it was just kind of something that we went out and did. And we spent probably about two years filming it. And then another, I don't know, maybe another year or two, at least editing. It took a long time to edit. And then it finally came out in, I think, 2012. Wow. How do you actually, you humanize the stories by trying to find out about different cases? Or how, how do you actually created this whole documentary? I mean, it's, it's quite a phenomenon in Asia. I mean, not just China, but, you know, places like Myanmar, Vietnam. Child trafficking is a big issue, basically. Yeah, we wanted to make it, I mean, my approach was we kind of wanted to make it personal, not do sort of like a big overview of, of the issue. So what we did is we, we picked three families in China who all had kids that had disappeared and, and all kind of different under different circumstances, different situations. So like one of them was a very young infant, basically. One of them was, I, I mean, I think she was like 10 and, and one of them was a teenager. And so we went and we talked to these families several times. We looked into their cases as much as we could. And so we kind of tried to approach the issue through that, keeping it in, a, in this very personal sort of like demonstrating how this trafficking issue affects the families and, and, and the sort of families and friend circles and this whole thing, but, but trying to approach this big issue through a few specific cases. I guess this is where tech has been used in social very well. I, I'm sure you have done something using the tech that you know to bring into this social angle and try to get some issues to be known to the world. But today, I'm here to talk to you about Tencent and probably one topic that I have been, always been very interested to talk to someone who really understands China is about WeChat. I mean, um, right. your colleague Dave came onto the show and spent an entire episode talking about lines. So I say maybe we follow in the same tradition as in tech in Asia, I'll find someone to talk about WeChat. Maybe someday I'll get someone to talk about Kakaotalk. Uh, maybe the first thing I should probably do is to introduce that the holding company behind WeChat is a company called Tencent. And it started something called QQ Messaging and subsequently moved to WeChat. Maybe give us an introduction about the company and how did it start from QQ and subsequently moved into WeChat, the messaging app. Sure. Yeah, so Tencent is actually one of China's, uh, it's, it's one of the biggest internet companies. In fact, it's one of the biggest companies in China and, and one of the oldest as well. It's one of the old sort of old guard with Baidu and Sina and those companies. It was founded in uh, 1998, I believe. And yeah, their first product was this messenger service, which at first was called OICQ, but they ended up having to change that name. Uh, supposedly they got sued, so they changed the name from OICQ to just QQ. And over the years, that grew from like, you know, obviously in 1998, China didn't have a ton of internet users, but over time that grew from just kind of this little AOL instant messenger style messaging service into this nationwide phenomenon. And I mean, for example, when I first went to China, to live, which was in 2007, it would have been really hard to find somebody, at least somebody under the age of 40, who didn't have a QQ account. I mean, it was just absolutely ubiquitous. You know, depending on where your listeners are in the world, there might be different analogies that you could draw. For me, it was like when I was young in the United States, 
everybody had AOL Instant Messenger. That was just what, that was the first sort of messaging app on the computer. Everybody had it. QQ was that, right? Literally just absolutely everybody who was on the internet, you, you had a QQ account. That was it. But Tencent didn't stop there. They started expanding into all kinds of other things. They had a, uh, and they were all sort of tied into QQ because that's where they had those users already. So they expanded into games, but their whole gaming service, you use your QQ account to log on. They expanded into social media, social networking with their QZone social network. But again, that was something you logged into with your QQ account. Pretty early, they also started to monetize this service in ways that at least Western chat apps really didn't monetize by doing things like charging for virtual goods and premium subscriptions to QQ. But obviously, QQ was was designed and built from the ground up to work on like a desktop computer or a laptop, right? It was not. It's not. A, it was not a mobile thing, because in 1988 and you know even in 2000 2005, like mobile phones that went on the internet, that just wasn't a thing in China. Nobody had them. As mobile phones and then smartphones started to become more and more popular, of course, Tencent did create a version of QQ for phones. But they realized that it, they would be better off with a chat app that they could design from the ground up to be mobile as like a mobile first experience. And so instead of redoing QQ, they created this entirely new chat platform, which is called WeChat. And uh, I guess the rest is, is history, so to speak. It's interesting because I recall when I was looking at Tencent in 2005, I think they were at that point in time, Facebook was only just started and people were making estimations of ARPU per user. And I think on average, um, QQ is like every user would have four to five QQ accounts and the ARPU rate was almost $2 per yeah. desktop user versus Facebook is less than 40 cents. I mean, to today, we're talking about $2 ARPU just based on the advertising model and microtransactions. Moving on to WeChat, how does WeChat work as a messaging app then? At its core, it's pretty similar to, I mean, any any messaging app that you might use, like Line or KakaoTalk or, you know, whatever, WhatsApp. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty similar to those, right? It has all the same features in that, like, the base experience is you can type messages to send to your friends. You can record voice messages to send to your friends. Now, of course, it's got additional features, like you can video chat with your friends and things like that. But it started as basically kind of like a replacement for text messaging with just like you can type messages and send them to your friends and also record quick voice messages and send them. Now, it has grown into a lot more than that and a lot more than a chat app. And of course, it has all of the bells and whistles that we might come to expect from chat apps like this, like stickers and, and avatars and kind of cool stuff like that as well. But yeah, the, the base experience is is pretty similar to most of the other mobile chat apps that, that people might have used. Maybe you can help our audience because... I actually use WeChat myself until my friend from China recently visited me, I think about a year ago, and started showing me what you can really do with WeChat. Maybe I will, t I will give some features and then you can tell me a little bit how did WeChat got this done. I think one of the first one was reading news. In Chinese, they call it Tingyuehao and Gongzhonghao. It's a way of the, you are actually able to use a chat app to get news. It's almost like a Facebook page, rampage basically. So how, what, yeah. how did WeChat integrate that into the system itself? Well, that was the, the addition of that Gong Zhonghao, the, the, the sort of like public accounts, was one of the first big things that they did af after coming out, you know, after sort of coming out with the initial chat app was they realized like if we want to, obviously I don't work for Tencent, so I don't know what's going on in their heads, right? But I believe that they pretty quickly realized that one, this is going to be a big thing, right? Because the user counts just like off the charts pretty quickly. And they realized we can use this as much more than just chat, right? We can turn it into a platform. So, But the first thing you need to do to kind of make it, to take it from a user-to-user -user chat thing and turn it into a platform is make there be some way, some kind of account 
that can broadcast information, right? Whether it's a news website that's that's broadcasting their news to a bunch of followers or whether it's a company that's broadcasting like, hey, we've got this hot new deal and click here to like check it out or whatever. They built this, I don't even know what the, I guess a, a public account. I'm not sure what the official English translation of the Gondong Hao would be, what they call it. But they, they basically, they built this platform where companies, I mean, I think it's primarily targeted at companies, could sign up for a special kind of account on WeChat that would allow them to, as you say, it's more like a Facebook, right, where users can sign up to follow them. And then there are all kinds of services within there. And one of them, of course, is reading news or, or reading really any kind of post that, that they want to be able to push and users can actually subscribe to that and then read that right from within the app. And so I think that's all part of this bigger goal that they have of kind of making like anything that you want to do on your phone, we want to put that into WeChat and make it possible for you to do that in WeChat. I mean, what is really fascinating after reading news is you can actually book taxis and book deliveries and I think food deliveries also you can do that too. So how do yeah. they integrate into a messaging app? Is it just a, like typing a particular message or a single button that allows you to create that transaction? Well, now they actually have part of what you can get with it with the Gondong Hao is you can kind of set up your own almost like a custom menu within WeChat itself. So if you're a company and you're setting up one of those accounts when a user follows you, you can actually have a little menu in there with different functions that the users can do all from within the app. So then you you can then integrate that into whatever your services might be, whether that is food delivery or whether that is, as you said, booking taxis, that's something that they have, or some other kind of e-commerce or gaming or whatever. And at this point, that's, I mean, there are now entire companies like startups that are coming up that are just WeChat commerce startups where they don't, there's no, like there's a couple food delivery startups that we've written about that literally they don't, they don't have a website or they have a website, but it's just like, hey, go to our WeChat. And they don't, you know, they don't sell through anything except for through WeChat because they can set up these sort of custom menus where users can follow them and then go in and say, you know, click a button that's like, I want to order chicken. And of course, WeChat already has their information in terms of their location and whatnot. And they have integrated, you know, they have their 10 pay payment option. So you can pay right from within WeChat as well. You know, it's it's quite convenient for the user. And there's a lot of impetus for companies to set this up because the user's already there. They already have their money in there. If you can give them this sort of one-stop click-to-buy experience, why wouldn't you, I guess? And and the answer is you would. So everybody has started to do it. Regarding the payment, it was interesting because I did a $2 transfer or actually two renminbi transfer with my friend in China. We did it during the Chinese New Year by sending each other bills because I wanted to understand the payment system. So is is that the actual payment system for a lot of other things like games and e-commerce? Yeah, I mean, it's all it's all integrated, right? I'm not sure if it works exactly. I didn't send any any red envelopes to everybody over New Year, so I'm not sure if it works exactly the same way. <laughs> but I, but I assume that it does. I mean, it's 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 ten cents, ten pay system. And that's what they want people to be using anyway. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah, once you've got the money in that, it's pretty easy to use that to pay for whatever it is you've decided you want to pay for within WeChat. Whether it's, I mean, it could be right. It could be sending a red envelope to your friend. Um, and there and that it's brilliant that they. They set that the way they set that whole thing up and the way they hype it up every new year. But, you know, beyond that, right, games that you're playing with in WeChat or booking taxis, whatever, it's, it's, it's all sort of this kind of one stop. Once you've got the payment system set up, it's very easy to just go in and click a button and say, OK, I want to do this. I kind of want to know how do people do gaming on WeChat? It's a messaging app. I, I think this is the part that 
maybe I have stopped, I played too much console gaming, but you know, how do you actually make games happen on WeChat such that people could be so addicted to it? I know gaming is one of the largest usage on WeChat. It's also one of the highest contributors to their revenue streams as well. Yeah. Well, obviously it's, I mean, it's only mobile games, right? So you can't like, you can't like log into WeChat and then play League of Legends. Although actually you might be able to use your WeChat account to log into League of Legends on a desktop. I don't know. Yeah, so it's so it's mobile gaming, it's casual gaming, which actually isn't uh, Tencent I think gets more revenue from its from its desktop PC games than it does from its mobile games. But they do get a lot of money from gaming and gaming within WeChat. And I think it's just I mean once you get into a game aside from integration with like your WeChat friends list, it's not that different from just playing, you know, it's basically just the same thing as playing a mobile game that you have installed as an app on your phone in any other way, right? The reason people do it within WeChat, I think, is just because they're there anyway. Mm. And because if they want to buy something within the game, again, because they've already set up their payment account, it's very easy for them to just, it's, you know, it's like a, okay, just press this button and then you've bought the thing, as opposed to some kind of laborious process where you, like, you know, for every new game, you have to input your information again and link it with your like payment account again. And it just if you every new game you download, you have to do that over and over again. It's it's a it's a process and it's annoying. So I guess another upside from for WeChat would be you you just you link your payment account once and then it's pretty easy to pay in any games that you want if you decide that's something you want to do. Of course, not everybody that plays games is paying money, but and they have you know they're monetizing through ads as well. Speaking of monetization, what is actually the predominant? business model for WeChat? Is it actually only through the third-party transactions or actually are there any different streams of revenue through different things? I know you just talked about very clearly about payments is one. How about yeah. things like stickers? I know Line uses stickers revenue are pretty large. What, what are the predominant revenue streams that they usually leverage on? Well, in terms of specific numbers for the different, you know, I, I, I couldn't tell you which one they're, mm. they're making the most revenue yeah, from. Yeah, yeah. I, I will estimate, based on the changes that they've been making recently, that they're probably making more money from ads than anything else. Although I, I, that's probably not counting the money that they make from their payment system, but that's kind of indirect, right? Like mm. that's people using their payment system because of WeChat, but it's it's a separate, so slightly it's a separate thing. So so, so because so you can use TenPay in mm. other ways too. You don't have to use it through WeChat. You can use mm. it through all other things. Just to clarify, it's like apps for application, mobile applications that run on it. It's like some something like a, a I, iOS app store model. Is, is that how, 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 how we look at it? Well, it's partly that. I mean, they've done a bunch of things. So recently they've they added like banner advertisements. So kind of like, I mean, sort of like what you would see at the top of a web page, right? Where if you're looking at some content uh, on WeChat, you might see a little banner above it that is just an ad, you know, an ad for, I don't know, whatever, buy this dress or, or anything. Mm. But then they have also added as, uh, which is, I think is what you were just getting at. They have also added promoted like app installs where you would see an advertisement for another app that you could then either, and it might be an app, sort of a sub, you know, a WeChat like plugin type thing, a thing that you could do within WeChat, or it might be an ad for a completely separate like third party app. And so you might see ads for those as well. So I, I mean, I don't know, based on the changes that they've been making recently, and they've been adding these features, my guess is that they're feeling, it seems to me like they're feeling like that may be in the long term, they're, they're, you know, the most important WeChat revenue stream that they have. I don't, you know, I don't know. I haven't seen the specific numbers for the, the different, uh, the way that that breaks yeah, down. So I, I, mean, I mean, the quality earnings doesn't give you a real indication, but I think maybe I can just give a couple of numbers for us to solve for the audience to know. I think their market cap has recently hit two, US 200 billion. 
they have sort of have about 500 million users in the last quarter 2014 and I think they hit 13 billion in revenue so they're actually a very very huge company oh, yeah. the most interesting data point I got which I which I did some work with with, uh, by also looking through a lot of your articles and several other sources is that WeChat has a significant high average revenue per user, ARPRO they call it, uh, $7. Maybe to give a comparison is something like WhatsApp is global ARPRO is $1. Facebook for Asia Pacific is $1.18 and $2.50 for worldwide on average. I think mostly yeah. from North American markets. Why is it so significant for WeChat? Uh, well, I think a couple of reasons. The apps, the sort of base that all of that is built off, right, is is just that its user base is ridiculous. Uh, probably by the time you're hearing this, it's over 550 million monthly active users. Not registered users, 550 million monthly active users, which ah. is absolutely nuts. So that's basically like if you're a human being who's in China and you have a smartphone, you have WeChat. So that's part of it, right? It's just that they have this absolutely massive user base to draw from. And because they have that, people are using it all the time. It's it's the the tool that you're using to interact with other people through your phone because because you know that everybody has it. Like even Facebook or some of the other apps that you mentioned, like, you know, if I want to interact with my mother in some way, I'm not going to do it through Facebook <laughs> because she doesn't have it. But if I was in I mean, like my wife is Chinese. Her mom has WeChat. Her dad has WeChat too. Like when she's interacting with them, she's chatting with them through WeChat, whether it be through video chatting or sending them text or whatever. Everybody has it. So that means that you're in the app all the time, right? Anytime you're having, you're, you're trying to do any kind of interaction with somebody through a smartphone, you're probably in the WeChat app. And of course, as we've been talking about, there are all these other things that you can do easily from within the WeChat app as well. And because you're there already, why not? You know, like if you need a taxi, whatever, I'm already in the WeChat app. I might as well just book it that way. If you need to like buy an extra, I don't know, an extra box of diapers or whatever, you're running out of diapers, whatever, I'm already in the WeChat app. I can just do that that way. Or if you, you know, you're somebody has, you know, you're talking to somebody, uh, they got to step out for 10 minutes. All right, I'll just play a quick game. I'm already in WeChat. I might as well do it there. So I think that's a huge part of their average revenue per user is just that they have this audience that is inspired to be in their app all of the time because that's where absolutely everybody is mm. so if i want it, to... within china anyway okay. you know it's a, it's a different story for wechat international but so if i'm a business a brand and i want to access chinese users or i'm a third-party developer how do i get onto wechat's platform then you need to sign up for a Hao, which is on, to be honest, beyond that, I couldn't exactly tell you because I haven't done it myself, mm. uh, not being a business personally. But that's the first thing that you need to do is sign up for one of those public accounts. And then I, I believe that Tencent has a lot of guidance in terms of how to set up wow. whatever, you know, whatever it is that you want to do, because what you want to do might be completely different things depending on whether you're like a news agency or a guy who wants to sell chickens on WeChat. <laughs> and and you can do that. I mean, either of those, if whatever you want to do, you can probably do it there. So, but yeah, the first thing is to sign up for a public account. And then beyond that, I, I think it, it probably depends a lot on what you want to do, but I don't know specifically. Ah, okay. So how does WeChat compares to the other messaging apps? I don't know whether, do you use Line or Talk? I have a little bit. Uh, to be honest, I'm not I'm not a frequent user of either of those, so take what I'm about to say with a grain of salt. But I don't know. In terms of base features, they're pretty similar. Like I know Line and Kakaotalk do also have integrated games. They've got integrated payments and sort of commerce-y stuff. They've got corporate accounts that you can follow. So I think if, if you were to go down like a feature list and, and kind of check off 
does the app have this? Does the app have this? Does the app have this? There's probably not a ton that you could point to that's like a huge difference between WeChat and either of those apps. WhatsApp is a different story because it doesn't have any of that stuff. And it's, you know, it's a Western thing, so it's it's aimed a little differently as well. I mean, I don't know. Again, I think the biggest difference is probably just the, the user base and probably a, a better way to phrase it is the user penetration in China among smartphone users. I mean, I know that Line is popular and Talk is popular, and I don't off the top of my head know specific penetration numbers for them in in their big markets but i suspect that wechat's numbers would still be higher just because it's again it's like qq before it it is such a ubiquitous you know just in china it's the chat app there's not like do you have kakao talk or line or whatsapp or whatever it's just no you you have wechat or you have a chat app that nobody uses that's right i mean in the official numbers i actually been trying to collate different sets of numbers and i find that i think wechat is the only one that hit beyond half a billion monthly active users yeah and i think line is kind of line and kakao talk are still behind by i think maybe half of those numbers that they are going on but i think maybe i want to divert one more question on wechat versus facebook surprise surprise facebook messenger is cloning wechat why didn't they do it for WhatsApp then? You know, that's a good question. And what, what are your thoughts on it? I mean, I've been thinking about this question for a while. I don't know. It's interesting because WeChat is so tuned specifically to like a very Chinese. I mean, it's it's part of the reason it's been so successful is because it's very well tuned to the way that Chinese people want to use their phones going into this sort of social hub and then everything radiates out from that. And on the one hand, that makes a lot of sense for Facebook. But on the other hand, that's not really the same way that... I mean, like, I, I would categorize it this way, right? The difference is in, in China, everything starts with those social connections. You know, like, if you want to talk about broad sort of Chinese culture, the concept of guanxi, like, relationships is super important in China, right? Mm-hmm. And it's important in Chinese business. Everything just sort of, like, permeates society. And so these... Like, a WeChat is built foundationally with that in mind, that everything's going to start from these user relationships, and then from there, people will go into shopping, reading news, whatever, but it's all going to be part of this social experience. And I think Facebook has that same vision, which may be why they're trying to sort of follow this WeChat path. But I don't know if in Facebook's core markets, which is probably the US and Europe, I don't think that, I mean, not to say that social, you know, social relationships and friendships are less important here, but but we don't approach internet services in the same way. Like, I don't know. I go on Facebook to keep up with my friends, but I would never buy something through Facebook. And I couldn't really tell you why that is or why the same thing is true of most of my American friends, but it is true. Whereas, you know, again, my wife is Chinese. She goes on WeChat again to talk with her family and her friends, but she would absolutely buy something through WeChat. And she has, you know, I don't know. I think it's a little misguided on Facebook's part. I mean, I suppose time will tell, but but I, I, I'm not sure that it's going to work for them the same way that it's worked for Tencent, just because I don't think that, I, I don't know, I think we are more used to in the West having this sort of compartmentalized, like Facebook is my social app and I go there to chat with my friends. And then the Amazon app is where I go to do my shopping and Netflix is where I go to watch my videos and the Uber is where I go to get my taxis and I've got all these things separate and that's the way that I like it. And it's not, you know, no one has really managed to copy that Tencent approach of like creating a one-stop shopping thing for all of these services services that that works in the west and i'm not sure that they're going to i think i think it's just a a fundamental difference between the way that chinese users are trying to use the app and the way that uh western users are so yeah i don't know i'm not uh Mm -hmm. i'm not not sold on tencent or uh, facebook's approach snapchat is kind of i mean the founder evan spiegel was saying that he is he he's inspired by the tencent model 
I mean, we yeah. model, and he's trying to make Snapchat move towards that model, which is which we now see two US companies are really heading in the same direction to try to clone WeChat for their mark for the respective market, which is the US market. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know. I, like, if I was going to bet on one of them or the other being successful at that, I would I would put money on Snapchat before I put my money on Facebook. Mm. But I still don't know if at this point I would put... If my choices were bet on either of them or bet on neither of them, I still might put my money on either of them at this point. Mm. I don't know. I, I could be wrong. I don't follow the, the Western tech scene that closely. Mm. So I, I, could, uh, I could be completely off on that. That's just based on sort of my own... Right. You know my own habits as a American and and the people that I know here that I'm friends with and sort of what they do. But mm. um, you know I'm pretty at this point right. I write I spend my days thinking and writing about technology in Asia, and I have a one year old or a four month old daughter, so I'm pretty out of the loop as far as what's going on in the U.S. <laughs> so I could I might be completely off base about that. Uh, but you talk about earlier on that there are startups that totally live on the platform of WeChat, right? Yeah. And yep. they, Tencent have actually invested in some of these companies. Um, I know you've been covering a lot of these companies. Which are the interesting ones in your opinion? Probably the WeChat startup that I am most interested in just because I love the name. It's called Call a Chicken. And the Chinese name is just Jiji. Like it's literally just yeah. like, get well, a chicken. You want to um, tell the audience also the connotation in some oh, right, yes. parts of China. What does it mean? So there's a bit of a double meaning because chicken is chicken but it can also mean yeah. prostitute yeah um, so and it's and it's a, the whole thing is very tongue-in-cheek it's it's a brilliant i mean it, what i the reason that i like them is because they've done such a brilliant job sort of playing that up uh, for example they got in trouble a few months ago because they they ran these advertisements that was like this so now i'm quoting from the advertisement translating it into english obviously but it was hey did you know if you want your husband home early you should help him call a chicken but so of course in chinese this is that double entendre where, where it's like you, they're, what they're really saying is you should order him like a nice chicken and he'll come home and he'll eat it and it'll be tasty but it also sounds like hey you should get him a prostitute which is kind of funny and it's like that would be offensive to a certain generation of chinese people right but the young sort of WeChat using internet sort of demographic that they're going after is going to find that funny and find that clever. And so this is, I, I really like to start it for that reason. One, just because it's kind of this crazy, like, hey, let's just go on WeChat and sell chickens. It's not the kind of thing that everybody would think to do in the first place. But then they've got this, I mean, they, I guess they're kind of following a little bit in this other WeChat service called Call a Duck, but <laughs> kind of following in the footsteps. So, and that, of course, has its own connotations as well. But well, that means I don't know. Below in some nuances, right? Right. Yeah, it's, so it's a, it's a similar thing. But I like both of those services just because, one, I like the idea of this very, very focused WeChat O2O commerce approach where they're just trying to do one thing and do it really well. And they're not saying, like, we're going to deliver any kind of food you want. They're not saying we're going to, you know, we're going to... And that now you see these O2O services popping up that are literally just like, oh, we're O2O everything. Want a massage? Want chicken? Want your car wax? Like, you get this all on our platform. And I guess there's there's something to be said for that but i like this sort of more focused approach we're just going to do one thing we're just going to do chicken and i love like i said i love the way that they've been marketing it too just this very clever sort of they it's clear that they know their audience mm -hmm. they're and they're doing a good job of uh of of targeting it so they're probably my favorite so like for example dd and quite the which is kind of the taxi app they also leverage on wechat as well right yeah, and, and Tencent actually is, well, now Tencent is invested in both of them because they merged. Yes. Uh, I believe it was DD that Tencent invested in prior to the merger, but I could be, I could be yeah, yeah. mixed. Uh, I think it's 142 million US 
Yeah, it was a lot of money. But so now Tencent is kind of, you know, sort of interestingly, Tencent and Alibaba don't usually get on the same team, but they are in this case because Tencent backed one, Alibaba backed the other. Now they've merged so that they can crush Uber and the rest of their competition in China. So yeah, Tencent, Tencent has a lot of money caught up in that. And so, of course, those services are integrated into WeChat as well. And that's another, yeah, that's another big one. I mean, that's just sort of like a massive one that anybody who's who's used the service is, is going to know about, but Which definitely. Which Baidu a real big problem, right? Because Baidu backs Uber, if I'm yeah. not wrong. So it's yes. going to be a real mess for them, basically, to get into this. Yeah. Yeah, depending on who you talk to, I don't know, like I have a colleague, Josh, who also worked or actually worked, he just recently left. He was a, a China-based editor at Tech in Asia as well. He still thinks, he, I don't know, he has uh, high hopes for Uber's future in China. I am not as optimistic about it. I I do think, I mean, I, Baidu knows what they're doing, but yeah, you've got Tencent and Alibaba back in these other apps and they're Chinese. They They clearly sort of have a little bit more of the government backing than Uber does. And anyway, that's a whole separate issue. But yeah, definitely an interesting thing to uh, keep an eye on. Mm. Okay, so I want to switch gears. I mean, we talked so much about WeChat and I'm sure we're, I'm going to try to get you to talk a little bit more sometime in the future. But I'll get to talk to something else. Talk about okay. Chinese companies copying copycats. I mean, this was something like 2005 we were talking about. Baidu is the Google for China. Alibaba is the eBay of China. Taobao actually. Tencent is kind of the... ICQ clone. I mean, right. We talk about all these clones, the Chinese clones, and because of the Chinese government's and also nationalistic pressures, these clones are able to thrive and IPO to become very, very big companies. And now they actually become companies in their own right. They're, they're no longer copycats. They also innovate too. Right. So I know you wrote an article, I think you posted it yesterday about why Chinese companies copy. So you talk about it as risk aversion. I kind of want to sort of get a sense of what was the gist of that whole article that you were trying to talk about. Sure. Yeah. So that was actually, um, I mean, the reason that I posted the article was in response to a user question about it. Um, I had just sort of solicited a bunch of Tech in Asia readers, like, what do you want to know about? Because I'm so focused in the kind of day-to-day, what's the news going on? I wanted to get an idea of some of the bigger picture, like, what do people want to know about China? And so this was one of the questions that came up, because we have this picture of China and Chinese tech companies, especially as these copycats, right? So... I think there's two sides to it, and this is kind of what I try to get into in the article. Why did these Chinese companies copy foreign companies to begin with? And there are a couple reasons for that. Risk aversion is is the broad one. So the first one is that because being the first company to do something in China doesn't always help you, it's risky, right? It's putting your neck out, especially in the earlier days of the internet where if you were the first company to do something, you are basically starting an entirely new industry in China. And any industry in China is going to be government regulated, and you don't know exactly how that's going to happen. Of course, you also don't know how consumers are going to react to it. So if you're the first company to do that, you're kind of sticking your neck out. And sometimes when you do that, your head gets chopped off. And that's what happened to Fanfo, which was the the first sort of China Twitter copycat. They got to it first. They were the first ones there. And then the government said, this is creeping us out, and they just shut it down. So if you wait, you kind of see what happens, you can then come in take that idea, maybe improve on the execution of it, but you also have some idea of how are users reacting to this, and importantly, how is the government reacting to this? And that's what happened in the case of these Twitter clones, if you want to call them that, is that, you know, Fangfo got killed, and it allowed all of China's other tech companies to look and see, okay, one, if we're going to do this, we need to do it in partnership with the government so that they're not worried about politically sensitive stuff. And two, maybe we wanted to not just be a Twitter clone, we might need to 
tweak it a little bit more for a China-specific audience in ways that Fanfo didn't. And so Sina and Tencent were then able to come in with Sina Weibo and Tencent Weibo that were more in tune with what the government wanted and a little bit more tuned for Chinese users. And so as a result, those won, even though Fanfo beat them to the Chinese market by like a year. I mean, it was just ridiculous how much sooner Fanfo was out there. And people knew about it. It wasn't like it was some super obscure service. But it was first and it lost, right? So one reason that these Chinese companies copy is because being first is a risk. Copying is less risky. You're, there's less regulatory risk. There's less risk of failure. So that's that's part of it. Another one, of course, is just that China's internet was developing along the same path as the Western internet had, more or less. But of course, it was behind the Western internet. And that meant that for Chinese entrepreneurs, there's basically, you, like you have this crystal ball essentially where you can look at the united states and see what's working in the united states and go oh, okay that's probably going to be a big thing in china in a year or two you could say it's cheap to go and just copy that idea but on the other hand like what entrepreneur wouldn't do that if you have this model right there that you know works and no one's doing it in china i mean those companies usually aren't doing it in china why wouldn't you do that you know why why wouldn't you go say oh yeah we should probably take that successful thing and and bring it to the chinese market as well so there was that aspect of it as well as that it wasn't as risky because you already knew that it could work because you'd seen it work in these Western markets and all that was left to do was try to sort of figure out how you could adapt it to the Chinese market. But you had some impression, some sense that this could be successful and that it wasn't just some crazy idea. Mm. But historically, and, and, that this is a very normal thing to do. I mean, look at Japan yeah. in the 1960s, 70s. They copied the US in the automotive industry, right? Yeah. And then subsequently, they innovated and created their own car industry. Right. If you want to go back a bit, you know, America, where you talk about cars, right? I mean, the the Henry Ford, yes, he did meet the Ford T, but there were also the U, the European cars. There's certain and also right. automotive industry. Oh well, locomotive industry, which is kind of the railway tracks. It started from the Europe and then US basically scaled it ten times bigger. So in yeah. even America's history is also dealt with this copy part. I think it's just a it's just a civilization problem, right? Everyone has yeah. to be copied at some point in time. But yeah, what, what? And, if, and if you're out in front, you know, if you're the one who's innovating, then of course other people are going to copy. That said, getting into kind of the second argument that I'm trying to make mm. in this article is that although all of these companies started, I mean, if you look at Baidu, basically just a straight up copy of, of Google search initially. Not in terms of the technology, but in terms of the aesthetics and the approach and the way, you know, what it what the product was. Tencent's QQ, basically just a copy of Western chat apps like ICQ. Um, mm. In fact, it essentially was, I mean, that's why they got sued. They were even using ICQ in their name. So a lot of these big companies, they started as pretty direct copies, but very quickly they adapted in, in very significant ways and changed their products because they had to, 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 to make them suitable to the Chinese market. And that's the reason why when the real company enters China, when the company that they copied enters China, they end up getting beaten by these so-called copycats because the copycats aren't really copycats anymore. There's someone that's taken maybe this Western concept, but they've tweaked it, they've applied it, they've changed it, they've adapted it for the Chinese market in ways that make it a vastly superior product in China to the product that's being offered by the Western company that may have innovated it. So one example of this that is in my head because I just was reading this the new book about Alibaba, Alibaba's World. I just wrote a book review about that that people can read on Tech in Asia if they want. It's a good book. But anyway, so the, the big example there is Alibaba 
versus eBay, right? And eBay was kind of this early pioneer of, of e-commerce and commerce on the web. And they've got this user, you know, their C2C auction marketplace that they've got set up. They enter China, they get their China operation set up. Alibaba is doing their B2B thing. But then Jack Ma decides, you know, I want to compete with eBay more directly. Let's set up Taobao. So eBay's got this C2C model. I mean, they developed it first, right? And they're even in China first. Taobao comes out and absolutely obliterates them. I mean, just destroys them. They, they were, they, they had, at one point, eBay had like 98% of the C2C e-commerce market in China. And then within a couple of years of Taobao coming out, they were just dead. Like, it just, just murdered. But the reason for that is that they took the idea of like C2C e-commerce, all right? That can work. And they took that from a Western company. But then they adapted it very specifically to what Chinese users want. They made a lot of changes. So one, they said, auction, that model's not really going to work in China because Chinese, China doesn't have a consumer culture that dates back very far. People don't have a lot of stuff sitting around in their houses that they want to sell. It's not like in the States where people have been collecting you know, consumer stuff for years and years and they might want to sell some of it off. China's only had a consumer culture for like 10 years at this point. So auction's not going to work. What we need to do is, is allow users to like set up shops and sell things to other users. Another recognition that they made was that the way that people shop in China is personal, right? Like you go, you talk to the shopkeeper, you, you might even haggle a little bit. You have a, a little bit of, there's a little bit of a relationship there. And one of the big issues that Chinese users had with shopping online in the early days was trust. They didn't trust, you know, if there wasn't a person on the other end, it, they, they didn't necessarily trust the system to be getting them the products that they were buying. And they didn't necessarily trust the person either. So what Taobao did was they integrated a bunch of, services specifically targeted at resolving that issue they integrated a chat feature so that you could actually users buyers could chat directly with sellers and it was much more like the real life buying experience in china and they integrated escrow payments as well so you didn't have to worry about getting ripped off and so i think that's just that's one example but there are a million that we could talk about but of like where the the uh, the basic idea comes from the u.s but i want to flip it around to i think that it's actually very unfair because you are actually also seeing Western companies, tech companies copying from China too. I mean, yes. Facebook, Snapchat, blatantly copying from WeChat. Yeah. But everybody, everybody sees it, no one calls it out, right? Twitter, yeah. the reply statement came from Weibo. They also took a look at how Weibo did it and they copied it too, right? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean... It, it's kind of like a, it's, it, I won't call it copying but it's iterative approach to that original technology that has been created it's just that people don't see that as important or maybe it's the yeah. perception of how we see it I mean you can talk about Toyota right they copied the car companies but they invented the lean production method which became also the lean startup method so you know where does the I mean where does copy really go you see yeah I don't know I mean I, I think and I think I said this in the article, like to me, the whole like Chinese companies are copycats is a historical thing. Like it's really not the case anymore. And there are very few, you couldn't really point to any successful Chinese company today today that's just straight up copying Western companies. Maybe some got their start that way, but they're not, it's, it's a history thing. But yeah, I think at this point, what we're seeing is what you just touched on, where like maybe the the, the initial concept is innovated first in the West because the Western market is more developed. Then China takes it, or, or and, and we could even bring this more broadly, right? Asia, because of course we're seeing similar things happening in Southeast Asia as well, yep. where Asia adapts these ideas, and 
based on what the needs are for the local markets, they might change things up a little bit. And then the West looks at that and says, hey, you know, that's actually working pretty well. Maybe we want to adapt that a little bit for us. So, I, I mean, I think what you just said with the chat apps is a good example. Another example, if we're looking at online gaming uh, and the whole free-to-play gaming model, which is becoming more and more popular in the West, but that was Asia, really, where that was the primary model first. And it was these Asian companies were like, PC gaming is a thing. People here want to do it. But they're not going to pay 60 bucks a game the way that Americans are. So we've got to figure out this other model and figure out a way to make it work. And they did. And so now we're seeing more and more Western companies look at those models and say, let's take that kind of approach and let's try to adapt that and we'll release a free-to-play game. So I think now we're seeing this kind of bounce where like, the idea starts in the West and it bounces to Asia where Asia changes it a little bit, maybe makes it better. Then maybe it bounces back to the West. Maybe after that we'll see another bounce where it bounces back to Asia. But I think at this point, yeah, I think we're beyond the whole copying thing. And now it's just sort of standing on the shoulders of giants as it were you know somebody does something and then somebody else comes in improves it a little bit another person comes in improves it a little bit more uh, but i think the, the copycat sort of story and that's what i was trying to get out a little bit in the article is like historically you can talk about copycats but at this point i think it's just oversimplifying it to to phrase things that way mm. so i kind of wanted to sort of get your sense of your recent project i well tech in asia recently started a podcast so yes why is the inspiration behind it and what are you guys covering on the show well the inspiration behind it is is kind of twofold one is just that we wanted to um it's something that i've wanted to do for quite a while and min uh, my co-host has been interested in doing for a while as well and recently we've been trying to uh, one of the things that we want to do with tech in asia is make it a little bit more appealing to westerners who might be interested in learning about the asia tech scene but one of the things about that market, we think, is that not all of those people necessarily are going to have the time to be going to a website every day and reading through you know, every article that we do and kind of keeping up with things that way. The podcast, as we are sort of doing it right now anyway, the idea is that we're kind of trying to make it this weekly sort of update that like, if you don't have time to follow Asia Tech News that carefully, you can listen to our podcast every week. And in 30 to 40 minutes, you're going to get the, the biggest tech stories that are happening in Asia that week. We'll tell you what they were. We'll give you a little bit of analysis and information about sort of the context of that and what we think that might mean. And then we'll also have a little bit of a feature on, you know, it might be an interview with somebody from the industry. It might be a discussion about some hot topic in the industry. It might be a feature of like a really cool startup or something like that. So we'll have a little bit of that as well. But the idea as it exists now is that it's kind of this like, if you don't have time to, to follow the scene as closely as you want to, here's 30 or 40 minutes. We'll take you through the biggest, like you need to know this from this week, the biggest stories. And then, you know, you can listen to that in your car. It comes out on the weekends. So the idea is kind of like on the weekend, maybe you're, maybe you're driving somewhere to have fun. Maybe you're like doing the, you know, mowing the lawn or whatever, whatever you're doing on the weekend, you know, you can kind of just put this on in the background and it's a way to, to keep up to date with what's happening in the Asia tech scene without having to commit a lot of time into sort of like keeping up with the news every day on our site. You know, I don't know. It's it's so young. We've only done four episodes so far. How did they find your podcast then? So yeah, anybody who wants to check out our podcast, you can uh, you can subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. I think just search for Tech in Asia and you'll find us there. The easiest way is probably just to go to techinasia.com slash podcast. 
And then there we have links to iTunes, links to Stitcher, got our podcast feed. So if people use some other kind of podcasting software, they don't like iTunes or whatever, you can go and just take that feed and copy it and paste it into your whatever podcasting app you like. And we've, we also have links to all of our show notes for every episode on that page. And each show notes episode also has a, uh, a SoundCloud embed of that show. So you can also just listen easily in your browser through SoundCloud as well, if that's what you want. Uh, so techinasia.com slash podcast is the easiest way. And you can also email us at podcast at techinasia.com. It's hard to know. It's it's a young show. We've heard some good things about it, you know, so far, but it's we definitely want to hear more feedback. So if people listening to this do listen to our podcast and they have some thoughts, definitely get in touch with us, let us know. And it's something that we'll be tweaking as we go on, the format and you know, whether or not the sort of weekly news thing is working. So, you know, we we're still open to making a lot of changes and it's just kind of um you know, something that we're working on. Okay. So we'll, we'll see how it goes, but we're excited about it. We're having fun. Okay. Also, Charlie, how do my audience find you then? Right. So if, if you want to find me specifically, I'm uh, at China Geeks on Twitter. Of course, you can also find me on Tech in Asia. I think if you just, if you only want to read what I've written, I think you can go to techinasia.com slash author slash Custer C. But you should just go to techinasia.com and read what everybody's writing um, and know I've had a hand in editing a lot of it. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's it. Yeah, you can add me on LinkedIn if you want. My yeah, that's pretty much it. I'm I'm cutting down on social profiles, so really just uh, yeah, feel free to follow me on Twitter or check out what I'm writing on Tech in Asia. I wanted to ask, what is your WeChat account? My WeChat account is <laughs> that's a good question. Honestly, I don't even know. My wife has been has been messing around with it lately. So I but oh. I, I I try to keep most of my social stuff for sort of friends friends only that people that i actually know in real life linkedin and twitter are my sort of public for anybody so if you want to connect with me i would suggest uh using go through one of those two methods cool so you can find me at bleongcw or at bernardleong.com or you can subscribe to this podcast at analyze asia a-n-a-l-y-s-e-a-s-i-a.com or you can follow us at analyze asia um, you can subscribe to us on Stitcher, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Feel free to give your feedback, one to five star. We are always happy to hear. Once again, Charlie, thanks for coming on on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.